0: Amen and amen. That should be our prayer. That is our prayer as we think about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has already come to inaugurate his kingdom. And now we are looking forward to the consummation and all of the power and the glory of that kingdom being spread throughout all of the earth and to all lands. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day from Matthew chapter 14. I'll begin at verse 1 through verse 13 as we now continue in this next new major section of Matthew's gospel. Now hear the word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it be given her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter, given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus, And when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Our gracious Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would be poured out fresh upon His Word this day, that we might with understanding hear it, and with appreciation give you thanks. With our hearts we may receive it, and with our lives that we would do it. We pray that the Spirit would lead us. And convict us of where we are falling short of the glory of God. That you would remove from us idolatry. No matter what form that idolatry may be. That Christ and his gospel may be living powerfully in us. That you would remove and forgive us of our sins. That you would release us and set the captive in us free. That we would stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set us free. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We began last Lord's Day in the second major section of this book. As I delineated and marked out, Matthew has given us several of those indicators um, that what closes a, a section of didactic teaching. We see these couplets, five of which are in The Apostle or the Gospel of Matthew with didactic teaching coupled with narrative. We now come to this next section of narrative, and this is the second historical illustration that Matthew uses in this new section to demonstrate one of the reasons that people keep people from coming to Jesus. I could even add the corollary or that keep the power of the Gospel from flourishing in the lives of people. Herod is a representative of a, of a class or a group of people who do not respond to Jesus and the gospel. And if one had to summarize the key element that hindered the gospel in Herod's life, in this class of people, it would be fear. Fear. Now, Fear has been a topic of recent study of many of us. I know the ladies have just recently completed a book from fear to freedom. And fear is a necessary study. It's a necessary consideration. There are many problems that we need to confront today because I believe a lot of those problems address and confront and stand against the gospel power in our lives. And every church since the history and of the church There have been gospel confrontations. There have been things that compete with the gospel or distract from the gospel and flourishing in people's lives. And and we see these trends among us even, even in this congregation. There are trends in groups like ours where fear becomes very prevalent. We see in many of our own circles where even our wives become very fearful over things. Over health issues, over health and dietary concerns, over travel, over image-based fears, what others think about us, or this veneer of this kind of Christianity that we want others to see of us. Or worries and anxieties that shape us, coupled with the fact that husbands fear their wives to the extent that they do not lead them through those fears into victorious living. Now there it is. And fear is something we all struggle with from time to time. But there's a big problem when those fears control us. Fear that controls us are fears that govern our activity. They shape our decisions. And in fact, controlling fears are sinful and need to be repented of. And there is what is hindering the gospel power in many of your lives. Fear is antithetical to faith. In fact, Jesus, which we've already considered, Red said in this eighth chapter of this gospel, but he said to them, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? The scripture informs us at the very end of the scripture from the 21st chapter of Revelation, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The message this morning is for us all when we're tempted to give ways to those times in our life when our fears will tend to govern our thoughts and control our behavior. This is not meant to be an uncomfortable message, but this is meant to be a message that will bring hope, will point us to Christ. And to know to lean into those fears and to have the victory over life. God sets up examples time and time and time again through the history of his people to bring them to the brink of despair if they look to themselves. Only to show forth the greatness of the power of the glory of his gospel in Jesus Christ to deliver them from such despair. To show that he can control it. He is the God of the impossible. He is in control of all things. He is sovereign. He can, he can, and he will for you. Folks, unless you come to the place where you admit and you are honest with those fears in your life, that those worries and anxieties, and they until you come to the place where you can acknowledge in your fallenness and repent of those as sin, and turn to the glorious power of the gospel, you will not have the power of the gospel living and breathing in you. And it will be a downward spiral. This is the second illustration in this narrative that is given to us as historical illustrations to show us why we and others don't respond to the gospel like we should. Now, there are those who are lost that need to respond to the gospel, and Herod would be a great class and representative of some of those, but there are some of us here, and perhaps all of us here, from time to time, give way to fear. And this message should be vibrant in that little part of our life that we have not given over to the complete and utter trust of Jesus Christ in that area of our life. And I hope and pray that the Spirit of God will work powerfully today in the truth that He's designed for us. Second illustration here links Herod's rejection of Jesus in the gospel power with fear the first incident we consider last Lord's day dealt with the rejection of Jesus based on jealous resentment this one deals with the rejection of the gospel based on fear and in verse 1 we are introduced to this man Herod the Tetrarch his name was Antipas Herod this Herod which the Herods can be quite confusing in the New Testament there's so many of them They're not all the same, but this particular Herod is the son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one that was in power when Jesus was born. He sent a decree throughout all of the land to have the babies two years and under killed because he was threatened by what he heard of a new king that was rising up, fearful of his own power and his throne. He was a vile and wicked man, and here was his son. When Herod the Great died, the Roman Empire was divided up into three uh, parts among his three sons of Archelaus, Philip, and Antipas, Herod here, the Tetrarch. Philip was Herod's, this Herod, the Tetrarch's, half-brother and was given the region to govern over Judea and Samaria. Here, uh, Herod, the tetrarch, was governing over that region of Galilee that we find John the Baptist and Jesus mostly ministered. Well, Herod had heard about Jesus in his works. At that time, Herod, the tetrarch, heard the report about Jesus, and then he said to his servants. And the main point of this passage is found in Herod's reaction in verse 2. And the rest of the passage is really to unpack and unfold that reaction. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. When Herod actually heard the news of Jesus, he was really quite distressed. As he explained to his servants, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist who had come back from the dead to revenge Herod for putting him to death. What is apparent and the main point of what is going on here is that Herod is haunted by his guilt in murdering John. And what we see unfold in this narrative is a, a man who was governed by his fears and the distortions of the truth that those fears yielded. They brought forth. That's why any time we are governed by fear, there are things that are characteristic that come forth as a fruit of those fears. And as Paul would tell Timothy, he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and a, of, of a sound mind. When we were given away to fears, we then began to be distorted and our, our affections and our love and, and soundness of spirit comes over us. And This is what's happening here. We see what's unfolded before us is a narrative of a man who was governed by his fears and the distortion of those truths. And Herod believed here even in the resurrection of the dead. How ironic is that? But his fear drove him to misplace the faith on the wrong object. And there's a good lesson for us here that fear causes misplaced trust. It causes misplaced trust. Now, Herod's belief that John had risen from the dead was not new to him. We find that over in Luke chapter 9, which gives a a parallel account to this, that others had proposed the idea in trying to figure out who this Jesus was. And some of those who were by Herod and around him said, well, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. And others would say, this is Elijah who has come. And others still would say, this is one of the prophets who has risen from the dead. So this idea was not new with Herod. That wasn't his original idea. So among all of the several interpretations that was given around him and in his hearing, there was one that Herod fixed upon, and he fixed upon the one that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. Now why did he fix himself upon that one? It was said that Herod even kept saying that over and over. This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. This is John the Baptist. And when one liturgizes himself in such a way, he comes to believe those very things that he has been telling himself, even if those things are wrong. But he believed that which he feared. Herod would so fasten himself on his belief that Jesus was John risen from the dead because he knew that this John was the one he murdered and something was behind the scene that was very much troubling him and why, I believe, he fixed himself upon that interpretation. Aaron is doing the same thing that people do today when something is amiss in their own spirit and they begin putting constructions on Jesus and the gospel that are twisted, drawing erroneous conclusions about Him and about their life. And Those constructions are rooted in our fallen faculties. When we fell into sin, our faculties were all skewed. The way we think, the way we feel, our original holiness, righteousness, and knowledge are all skewed in the fall. And ever since then, we don't think right. We all have mental problems mental disease, we have heart problems and love disease, we have physical problems and death disease, we've got major problems, people, it's because of our sinful faculties. Now what is the help for our problems? It's Christ and the gospel. Don't think the way you think because your thoughts are not God's thoughts. Don't trust the way that you would have your plan work out because your plan is not God's plan. His plan is better. His thoughts are more lofty. And His wisdom is sure. And His love is absolute. And here we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the power to deliver you. From those things that you fear. But as fallen creatures we simply. Do not have the ability to ascertain correctly. The gospel of Jesus Christ. A part of from the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit with His Word revealed to us, not only in our heads, but to our hearts. And that might be only about 12 inches, but that is a long journey for many. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We believe lies. We deceive ourselves. Even our own hearts are deceptive and sick. Who can know it? Jeremiah would say, we end up trusting ourselves more than our creator. We believe what we conclude more than what God has revealed. And we liturgize ourselves with those false assumptions right down to the place that we have convictions on lies. In Herod's life, he is living with the guilt that undergirded his entire worldview or his viewpoint about this interpretation. And too often people take that approach. There's something like a guilt or a particular fear that trains a person's thinking in a certain way that keeps God's provision from them. When we see in verses 3 through 11, that really is the majority of the passage, but it's really unpacking verse 2. He's unpacking verse 2 in a flashback of what went on in the context of why Herod was thinking the way he thought in the interpretation of what he believed. In verse 3, it says, Herod had arrested John for rebuking him and his wife. Now, John the Baptist came preaching Jesus in the kingdom. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. He came calling people out. And like it is many times today, when a prophet or a pastor begins calling people out, when he draws them to repent, when he says, "This is sin. Repent from the sin and turn to Jesus," a lot of times that's not well received. But when it is well received, there is liberty and glory and and life and love. And joy and peace on the other end of that repentance when we find the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of God in that gospel unto everyone that believes it. John the Baptist came preaching Jesus in the kingdom, and one of the main aspects to the preaching of the kingdom is calling people to repentance and trusting the King. And that's exactly part of the gospel ministry. It's part of what I'm trying to do today and saying, stop having your controlling sins. Repent of those fears and trust the King. You may recoil in your spirit and in your mind to that message or you can embrace it and know the power of the gospel into you because God will not cease from working in you. God will not cease even crafting up very specific places for you to bring you to the brink of despair of your greatest fears only so that you cry out to him and you know his victory and you look back and say, why couldn't I have done that yesterday? And you rejoice when he comes through. And you glory in his work which is fresh and new. Part of the point in taking sin and calling it what it is, is calling people to repentance, to believe the gospel. It is taking people out of death and putting them into life. It is taking them out of fear and putting them into faith. It is taking them out of darkness and putting them into light. It is taking them out of prison and letting them have freedom. So don't recoil. Don't shrink back. Just let the gospel have its cleaning work and the chastening hand of God. Let it do its beauty to bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now, when John recoiled, or when John rebuked Herod, Herod and his wife recoiled at that. They became very upset, they put John in prison, and John was likely in prison in herod 's palace in Macaris, which archaeologists have dug up this place on not far from the north side of the the Dead Sea, and in that particular area, this p- palatial residence was very high on a hill that even was higher than I believe uh, the, 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 the the elevation of Jerusalem had a beautiful um, viewpoint from the top of that, uh, that palace, but yet there was a dungeon that was dug deep into the ground there where there was no natural light, but only the damp and dank thin air down there, and archaeologists have uncovered places down there where prisoners had been chained to the wall. And it was here <clears throat> that is believed <clears throat> that John was imprisoned for about a year or maybe even a little more. before Herod beheaded him. Can you imagine? At that time, Herod's wife, who the text reveals to us as Herodias was mentioned here, was married uh, to Philip. And I say at that time she was married to Philip because she never was unmarried to Philip. Well, Philip was Herod's half-brother. On a trip to Rome, Herod had seduced Herodias to become his wife. Come back with him and be my wife. So Herodias divorced Philip, but it was not a lawful divorce. And John the Baptist is calling him out on that. That's why I think the Scripture often refers to Herodias, the wife of Philip. Herodias was not only Philip's lawful wife, but she was also the daughter of Herod's other brother, Aristobulus, making her also his niece. So, Herodias was Herod's niece and his brother Philip's wife, and he took her for his own. By the way, uh, having had to also divorce his own wife, who was the daughter of his other brother. Who His other brother got really upset and sent the Roman troops in and almost annihilated his portion there because of that particular divorce. So so this is just filled with just um, scandal, would be your word, Bert. Just scandalous. this is certainly a scandal. One commentary said that Herodias was one of the most wicked and perverse women in the Bible, second only to Jezebel. And once married to Herod, she began to manipulate him. Well, let me tell you what, if if a woman agrees to marry you in that kind of situation, you ought to know that (laughs) the same kind of thing is going to turn right back around on you. On some occasion, perhaps even maybe more than once, John had confronted Herod. There seems to have been more than one face-to-face contact that Herod had with John the Baptist, but on at least one of those occasions, and most certainly it would have been in the presence of Herodias, John rebuked him for having his brother Philip's wife. You can see it now. You ought not do that. That's a sin. That's unrighteous for you. And Here... It was in the hearing of that finger-pointing rebuke. And John called him out on his sin, just exactly what John was commissioned to do. He was just being faithful to God. Nothing wrong with that. Not even anything wrong with his manner. He might have been a little brazen in his boldness, but nothing wrong with that. John is such a contrast to Herod here. John doesn't consider the consequences. He doesn't fear man. He fears God, and that drives his thinking and his actions and his boldness and his faithfulness before God in the power of the gospel, no matter what consequences it would get him for just a short time. <clears throat> and when John was in prison there, in that context, Jesus would report of him. And testify that there has not risen a one greater than John the Baptist of all the prophets. Jesus was honoring this man. Now unlike John, Herod was a man given to fear. He feared the multitude we can find in verse 5. He feared John the Baptist. He feared his wife. Josephus even informs us that he feared a rebellion from his own people and he feared another one would come from his brother. Some even speculated that perhaps he feared that John the Baptist would be the one rising up from the dead who would then lead that rebellion. Now, the other Gospels do help us put some of those pieces together, and particularly as we see Herod and John the Baptist from Mark chapter 6, verse 20. I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to draw out three points very quickly because I think it's helpful in the context. In Mark 6, 20, it says, Herod, now, now hear this, listen to this. <clears throat> For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Now that is a commentary that brings some light to our present context when we consider, because there's three things from that verse that we should know about Herod and the way he viewed John. Number one, Herod feared John because of John's righteousness. Number two, it was because of this fear that Herod had for John, Herod protected him. From whom, you might ask? And then number three, when Herod heard John preach, he heard him gladly and was influenced by him. There was some effect that was going on in John's preaching. Herod was both fascinated with John and he feared him. He he was a bit of an anomaly in some ways, but really not, because he represents a lot of other people out there in the world. And with Mark's account of John and Herod, it appears that Herod had imprisoned John because of Herodias' influence. Yet this was part of the protection, perhaps. This would come into conflict with his own conscience. It was this John who would call Herod to righteousness. There was something about that, that that Herod deep down inside knew to be true, but he resisted it and he began to suppress that truth. But something was going on in Herod's consciousness. His conscience. Therefore, when John rebuked Herod, in Herodias, it appears that the greatest hatred came from Herodias, the wife. Now, when the text in Matthew accounts, uh, in Matthew's account, does speak that Herod wanted to put John to death, it likely was coming more from Herodias than Herod himself. And I think there's a notion that has played out itself in the story here in the narrative that, that reveals that. Herodias was an influential, wicked, immoral, manipulative woman. Don't ever use her as a pattern, ladies. Second worst to Jezebel in Scripture. Do everything she is not. From the time of John's first rebuke, she wanted to get rid of this meddlesome, bothering prophet. She obviously had been thinking of getting rid of John for some time, but she waited for the opportunity. And now, when you think about it, this guy's been in prison for over a year in a dungeon, silenced, not to have his finger pointing in her face anymore. He has very little opportunity to continue that rebuke and confrontation, but the memory and the rebuke was so vibrant it was still before them just as it had occurred. People can remain sour and bitter over long periods of time until they either get their revenge or unless the poison consumes them first. Herodias' opportunity came, or perhaps she took the opportunity, when Herod's birthday came up. You almost wonder if Herodias hadn't planned all of the details of this celebration to accomplish her wicked plot. The birthday celebration would have been very common in Roman pagan events. In fact, birthdays back then were celebrated in a very pagan and Roman fashion. They would be filled with wicked debauchery and drunkenness of every kind. And particularly for a king or someone of import Herodias' daughter, who we know her name from Josephus, was named Salome. Well, Herodias had worked this out, obviously, ahead of time, and Herodias' daughter, Salome, was called to dance before Herod. Now, this appears to be more of a sensual kind of dance, which would have been fitting for the Roman celebration of a kind of birthday that they had back then. And verse 6, that her dance pleased Herod. And the word pleased there became a euphemism for being aroused. It was not a Christian kind of term. The drunken king was so enamored that he promised anything up to half my kingdom. Herodias had already worked all that out. She had that plan all figured out and so vile was she that she colluded with her own daughter to request the head of John the Baptist. Now, folks, let me just say an aside. I have seen wives colluding with their own children against their husband and father that absolutely tears and destroys a family. Christian family, you are all on Christ's page. You are all a part of the same team. Do not ever have any collusion or any divisions within your family using one family member against another to bring division because the break will be so severe it will affect others generationally long after you're gone. Well, because Herod feared the people, uh, he did what she asked. She had him backed into a corner. She, her plan was coming just along perfectly according to her thought. But he had great sorrow, and with regret, he had John beheaded. Verse eleven seems to reveal the entire hierarchy of when, what went on. Herod made a rash promise, he feared the people, he had to uphold his promise. Now he had to go have John the Baptist beheaded in prison. He came and delivered the head of John the Baptist to Salome. Salome went right away and marched it off and gave it to her mom, and it was the whole thing all the time to which, with a satisfying grin, Herodias received it. Achieved success. That was the background and the flashback behind the entire episode of Herod's rejection of Jesus. Why Herod did not come to the gospel power. He was so driven by his guilty conscience and fears that, that completely constructed a view about Jesus and the gospel that was completely and entirely inaccurate. And when you believe in an inaccurate picture of reality, you will not have the gospel power working for your victory. You will be prone to be driven by your fears to the extent that you can believe some very outlandish things. Like this is John the Baptist coming back to home things that will actually hinder the power of gospel in your life, things that will actually distract you from the Lord God of heaven who has the power given unto him in heaven and on earth to send you forth in victory. And there's some lessons here I'd like for us to consider. The first lesson is this, that Herod had so suppressed his conscience to the extent that he stopped believing the truth And he believed a lie. The rebuke of sin is confrontational. As sinners, we have to admit truth about ourselves that is unpleasant and often unwanted. We don't like to hear it, but that is the first part of the gospel victory. You have to be confronted by the law. You have to be smitten by the law in order to you know that you fall short of the glory of God so that you can embrace the glorious news because you're not going to be saved by your works of the law. We fall so short of God's glory constantly, constantly. And the greatest help to our fallen, depraved nature is to be called unto repentance and gospel power. That is a help. That is a grace. That is a mercy. That is a glory. Get rid of that old self and come to Christ. But when we despise this or we show contempt for others and we resist this in our spirit, which our flesh is so prone to do, we begin searing that conscience. As with a hot iron, searing that conscience. That conscience is that internal voice that speaks according to the law that is written upon our hearts. And it begins testifying against us when we are in error or going the wrong direction. Now I qualify, it is only as good as it is informed by Scripture. So your conscience can be wrong, but it is the voice that is addressing the wrong in us. And you never go against your conscience. Your conscience may need to be strengthened from weak to strong. But you don't go against your conscience for whatever you do not do in faith is sin. But when we continue in sin, that part of the conscience can become desensitized and it becomes less willing to hear the truth and the confrontation anymore. And a seared conscience can become kind of unfeeling toward those areas that we are resisting. And what we do is we end up resisting those areas that the conscience speaks loudly of. And we resist those who come alongside to point out the very thing that our conscience is speaking. And when you silence that voice that's screaming at you, you're on a path to destructive behavior, a burdensome life, and even death itself. And resisting your conscience will suppress the truth, and you will, you're not far from believing lies, deception, if you're not already there. In the 1980s, I I apologize for this illustration. In the 1980s, there was a Spanish airline that crashed. That was way back when, Steve. No worries. But it was likely caused by a, a pilot error and a failure to follow the proper instrument approach procedures. Steve is one week from having to leave go to Spain for a bit of a time, so I'm not aware of what this might do. The the pilot, however, um, was not aware of his position. He was flying in the dark, and later the black box revealed that the crew did not respond to the ground proximity warning system, the GPWS. That could be heard, pull up, pull up. Pilate responded by saying, shut up, gringo, and turn the machine off. And like so many people in life, they try to shut their conscience down. When the screams come out, pull up, pull up, turn away, don't do it. They ignore it. They try to shut it down. And for Herod, he thought he could distance himself from the rebuke by imprisoning John. For Herodias, she thought she could distance himself by getting John's head on a platter. But the worst thing you can do is to try to silence those who try to help you in seeing the path of life and the gospel and joy. Don't shut righteous people out of your life. You need them speaking into your life. You need the corrections of God's people. And even David said in one of the Psalms, when he was inappropriately rebuked, he even says, Lord, let the righteous smote me, for it is good for me. Don't shut out your conscience. Don't ignore that voice. Don't turn it off. It's your safety. It's your guide. It's your help. And don't shut people out of your life who are also bringing the same message. There's a second lesson here. And the second lesson here is do not give way to your fears. Not only will fears continue to grow, they will multiply in other areas of your life and it will be a constant self-destructing path. You cannot give in to your fears. You cannot let them control you. We all will be afraid in times of our life. But when it begins controlling the way you think, controlling your behavior, controlling the way you act... That's sinful, and you need to repent of it, and you need to get the gospel grace in your life. Fears will eventually take hold of you. They will imprison you. They will influence you. They will govern how you think. They will govern how you view life. They will then take things that are right before you in their most obvious manner, And they will reconstruct them in a way that you will believe things that are not true. They will become so invasive in your life that the gospel will be suppressed and you will become more dead as a person rather than alive. These kinds of fears that control us are antithetical to Christ and the gospel and life. And how many times did Jesus address these things? Do not worry for your life. Do not worry for your provision. Do not worry what man can do you. Do not fear death itself. Only fear one thing. And one thing only, let the fear of God control you. So let's just all acknowledge our worries and our fears or an acknowledgment of our doubts. And doubt is the essence of the biggest sin. And we need to repent of those and turn away. But yet your, your fears can over, be overcome with the gospel. But you have to lean into them with the gospel. And if you're not going to willingly lean into them with the gospel, God's going to take you into a place that the only thing you can do is acknowledged the gospel and his deliverance and his power. And then when he brings you through that, you're going to say, Oh, God, thank you for your deliverance. Praise your holy name. Now help me to remember that because I know around the corner there's something else. Help me to remember when you bring me tomorrow where the waters are bitter that right around the corner is Elam where there are seven springs of an oasis. And there is always an Elam around the corner from Mara. Always remember that. God will bring you through temptations and trials and difficulties in your life only so that you will trust Him more, so you will love Him more and have more of the fruit of the gospel coming through your life. Your greatest objective in life and your greatest pleasure is to glorify God and you glorify Him by trusting Him. One of the greatest characteristics in the Christian life and faith is perseverance. And that is a work of God working in you, but as you persevere and you bear up under the weight and under the trials of life and you trust God through it, And you, God can show you through it. And God is most glorified when you trust Him in those times and He gives you the victory so that you can look back and you acknowledge only Him and Him alone to take the glory. Why did Herod not respond to Jesus? Because he believed the wrong things about Jesus. He believed the wrong things about the gospel. He thought the wrong thoughts. His conclusions were erroneous. He trusted in a lie. And he holed himself up in that lie to the place where the truth was suppressed. And he liturgized himself in these things to the extent that he was greatly convicted of these conclusions. And his fear conflicted with the gospel, and it forfeited the grace of God in his life. And he went against his conscience, and he regretted it. So let me encourage you to lean into those areas about which you're afraid. Lean into your worries. Lean into those things that control how you spend your money that are governed by fears. Lean into your activities and the way you do things that are anything but faithful to God. Lean into those areas where you have doubt and you're not sure that God's going to, he's worked over here, but I'm not going to let him in here. I'm afraid of the implications and the consequences if I do. You lean into that, you open that door, and you let the gospel into that part of your life too. Lean into those areas where you don't trust because you have to trust Jesus. There is no other option for eternal life. How many times does the Bible reveal that God leads us into fearful situations simply to gain our trust And take care of the matter Himself. Is that not why the people did not go into the promised land? Oh, there are giants in the land. God knew that. He wanted giants in the land. There are fortified cities of which we cannot stand against. God knew that. He wanted that. These men were battle-hardened and His people had not seen war. God knew that. He planned it all. They didn't need anything but some priest's horns. Right? Jericho, the first battle. They go in all they could see, except for two. They all acknowledge the land was good. They all acknowledge that this is an amazing land. But no, there's no way we're going in there. God just don't worry. I will be with you. <laughs> I will go before you. Before you, like, before you even get there, I'm going to already have been there. I will go before you. I will fight the battle. You will not have to fight. You will have the victory. Now, just trust me. Do you trust me on that? No, we do not trust you, Lord. We will not go. I'm not going into that land to receive all those good benefits and all the things you promised to our fathers and the whole reason you delivered us out of Egypt, the whole reason for our redemption, the whole purpose of our salvation, I'm not going to enjoy that, Lord, because I don't believe that you're going to do that. And that's exactly what happened to our fathers, and it's been repetitive ever since when we succumb to our fears. We trump in unbelief. God wants you to triumph in the gospel. And the gospel will only have power in your life through trusting God and his word and giving yourself to it, knowing that Jesus reigns over every part of life. Do not fear, for I am with you, he says. How many times did he say that? Be of good courage, do not fear, for I am with you. Be of good courage, do not fear, for I am with you, Joshua. I am with you, Caleb. I am with you. Church of Jesus Christ, I am with you, members of Heritage Church. Do not fear. Because if you allow fear to control you, you disallow the power of the gospel to save you. Jesus reigns. The promise is here today. And you can, to this day, Like a crisis moment salvation on the road to Damascus today. You can repent of those sins, put it under the cross, and go to live in the victory of Jesus Christ through every fearful situation. You will not let cowardice be characteristic of your life. Oh, you will have fears. Just don't let them control you. Trust Christ in the victory and he will show you great and mighty things which your eyes have not yet seen and your ears have not yet heard. Praise be to God who has given us these promises for life and for godliness in the path that he wants to lead us for his glory and his name's sake. Our gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel, which is the power of salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first, and yes, also to us, how thankful we are for the power the very power that has been given to our risen Christ, the power and authority in heaven and all on earth in which He is now entrusted to His church that the gospel may be prosperous, the kingdom will grow, and it will be prosperous even over kings' hearts, even to the least of the brethren. Lord, we ask that You would forgive us of our fears where we doubt You. Or we fear of what other people think about us. Or we fear the consequences if we are to stand true to truth. We fear about the implications of what friends and family may think if I am faithful. Fear of being imprisoned if we call uh, a wicked man out upon his adultery. Or deliver us and forgive us of our fears that control us. Fears of death. Fears of sickness, fears of worry and anxiety, fear that you will not provide for us, fear that we will not have enough to be happy. Fear, Lord, deliver us, we pray. Show us the power and the hope in the gospel. And may we feast upon Christ today, knowing that with every bite that we chew and every drink of wine that we swallow, and that gospel life is living in us to assure us that this is the truth and the truth will set us free. It will show us light in the midst of darkness. We know that we will dine with our Lord even in the midst of our enemies, even if it's down in a dark, dank dungeon where the Lord will graduate us into the glories of heaven. Lord, deliver us. We confess our sins. And we ask that you would save us from our sins. For the sake of your name, that you may be more glorified in us. Hallow your name today. In Jesus' name, amen.